Okay, hello there, everybody. This is HPAC on the air. Welcome. I'm Rob McManamy, Editor-in-Chief of HPAC Engineering Magazine, and uh, we're happy this month to be joined by Elizabeth Beardsley. Um, she's our guest today. She's a Senior Policy Counsel for the U.S. Green Building Council, where she served earlier this month as the group's representative to the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, Scotland, or COP26 for short. A longtime environmental advocate, Liz holds a civil engineering degree from Stanford and a law degree from the University of Virginia. She describes herself online as a mom, daughter, friend, and lifelong earth lover. So Liz, welcome to HPAC on the air. Thanks, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us here. And uh, we feel privileged, actually, to be able to share your very fresh insights from COP26 with our audience. And, and uh, last week, we even posted uh, uh, your first wrap-up blog from the conference on our website, hpac.com. So if you would, Liz, could you just please sum up some of those uh, initial impressions for our readers and tell us uh, what the experience is like for you personally? And, and just had you been to previous uh, COP conferences before? Yeah, that's a great place to start. Um, I actually, my first COP was in Paris where the Paris Agreement was formed and it was really exciting time. Um, interesting for your audience is that at the COP21, which was in Paris, that was the very first time there was a buildings day. So um, the COP, is, it's a little hard to explain if you haven't seen it, but here's, I'll, I'll do my best here. Um, part of it is like the actual negotiations and that's, you know, the countries, they are the, you know, quote unquote, parties to the framework uh, agreement. And, you know, every year they try to make progress with additional details, um, you know, changing the terms, making, trying to make progress on that. So there is the detailed negotiations um, that is usually by article. And then there's lots of behind the scenes negotiations that might be between two countries or groups of countries and there's different coalitions that form and so on. So that, there's that. The um, If you're not part of a country delegation, then uh, you might be observing. So there are some NGOs that really get in the weeds of specific things that they want to see out of the agreement and they will try to work with um, the parties to to accomplish those outcomes um, and try to influence that or even just observe and report out to interested stakeholders. Um, and then there's part of the COP that's really is like a conference and it was interesting to see how that's evolved over the last five years. Um, there are pavilions that countries can have and they either uh, depending on the country, they might showcase their technology and solutions. They might be more about uh, science or about impact of climate change on that country. So you can imagine like roaming the pavilions and kind of seeing that diversity and, you know, all the focus around the globe, all on climate. So even though there's different angles, whether it's, you know, rising sea level or droughts causing agricultural problems, migration, like it really puts it in perspective how real this situation is. Um, and then there are side events where um, there are presentations, panel discussions, and so on, on a full range of climate topics. So, you know, that's one of the things that we do at the COP is, you know, make presentations and participate. Uh, this year, there were probably more um, local government and state government uh, than before. So that was really positive. And 
um, yeah, and overall, I think the trend is more towards solutions, although uh, there are some countries that are quite vulnerable and they're certainly showing what's happening now to their countries. So that's kind of like a, a nutshell of what the COP actually is. Um, I think overall impressions for me was just the very sobering reality of where we are. And a couple of weeks before the COP, the International Energy Agency released its assessment of where things stood with all of the climate commitments that had been made by the nations and you know, found that that would still bring global warming over two and a half degrees. Um, there, as is often, you know, the COP, the event of the COP, which is every year, there's a conference except for last year, uh, is like a forcing event. So, you know, people rally and try to get stuff in for the event. Um, so it did bring a lot of new commitments, both in the, you know, weeks and days prior, as well as in the first week of the conference. So some other assessments were made that with those new commitments, that that might bring us closer to like 1.7 degrees of warming. But the thing is that this depends on everything in the commitment being done. Mm -hmm. I guess that's one of our concerns is that we see commitments being made, which is progress in and of itself, but now we really have to see the action and accountability across the board from the country level to uh, businesses that are making commitments and really be able to see that change happen through data and over time and we need to accelerate our actions as well as as for takeaways much has been made about the inability of the the largest nations to agree on, on truly urgent action as you say to, to mitigate global climate change some even you know kind of unkindly i guess had called cop 26 a cop out and beforehand many had referred to the event as the last best hope uh to change the planet's trajectory um i know you just got into a a bit here already, but how would you assess overall the uh, uh, the success and, and impact of the summit? A number of folks have been have, have still been stressing that there, there were a number of positives came out of this. Yeah, I think I'm probably an optimist, glass half full person by nature, and that's I think what mostly would dictate someone's response to this question because there was a mix. So I think the positives were we did see that flurry of enhanced commitment uh, come out. Um, we also saw, you know, I think the the youth voice was really strong, mm -hmm. um, mostly outside the fence line, but it was, I think, palpable. There did seem to be like a heightened level of responsibility. I know that's like hard to define, but I, I think it was there and some of the negotiators were, you know, bringing photos of their grandchildren and, and bringing up future generations, that was more and more common. Um, and so, you know, those commitments need to be now followed up on and accelerate. But I think that once things start happening in a given strategy or sector, it can create momentum. I mean, I remember as a kid, uh, my dad talking about solar energy and it just seemed so crazy. And it seemed crazy for a really long time until all of a sudden it seems like the coolest thing. And why can't I have it on my house? Mm -hmm. So that, you know, flip to where solar and wind are, um, I think, lower costs for new 
new production than fossil fuels in the US now. So, but it took a while to get there. So the other, I think another big takeaway was the focus on the next 10 years as being critical so that we don't you know, lock in more carbon and we still mm -hmm. you know, preserve the chance to keep the global warming less than 1.5 degrees. And that, um, that is a, a really important recognition. And so I think getting started, even if it's not perfect, is better than not getting started. So I feel like that was an overall positive. Mm -hmm. um, and then the presence of business, um, I've listened to a few other um, summaries as well from different perspectives. And I think that the business community feels like they're pushing and they, they want more certainty, they want more ambition. So, um, so that I think was another kind of piece of it. Um, and actually, I guess even the, the climate pledge that was signed years ago, I guess in the, when after we had, the US had pulled out of the Paris Accords, there was still the, uh, the climate pledge that uh, I guess Michael Bloomberg was, was, mm -hmm. uh, was helping to put together. And, and that had, it was it 193 companies or something of that sort that were with, with companies of, of, from all different, uh, I mean, including a number of engineering construction firms, I think it signed on to that pledge as well. Yeah, and there were some specific breakthroughs um, I think that also helped make this summit have a positive impact. So um, the methane pledge, which is more on the countryside, mm -hmm. but on the business side, there's a race to zero. Um, there's all kinds of different commitment platforms and they, they're now all seem to have zero in them and sound pretty similar, mm -hmm. but just more and more people are getting on to, to one or more of these and trying to make that part of their brand and they are seem really motivated to make the changes. And um, I think the other big thing for uh, the building sector and for engineering is seeing a focus on embodied carbon and supply chains. I mean, that's mm -hmm. been a really hard issue for a lot of companies to try to get the data or how does, you know, you might care about how much energy is used to produce your concrete or how much carbon emissions is associated with that. But, you know, as one entity, you might not feel like you can change that. Well, we saw uh, the US actually was a leader along with um, the EU in forming the first movers coalition. And so this brings together corporate buyers of materials like steel and concrete and manufacturers of those materials so by the, the buyers making commitments that they want and they will purchase a certain amount of lower carbon materials, that sends a pricing signal or it provides a, a sure a commitment to that um, purchasing power that now uh, sends that signal to the manufacturers that they can in fact invest and make these changes and they will have this competitive advantage and they will have buyers for something, even if it might cost a little bit more. Okay, and I, I know, and from the US side also, um, I guess while you were over there, um, I, I think the infrastructure bill here in the US passed. And I think actually when you came back, they uh, maybe they waited for you to come back before they signed it, I guess. But uh, yeah. could you talk a little bit about, uh, I guess what that's, because actually there's, there's quite a bit of, of, of green items in there, I believe. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. And I guess there's also more green items in the, 
the, the Build Back Better legislation that's still out there. Um, so maybe maybe just if you could talk a little bit about both of them would be great. Yeah, thanks, Rob. In fact, we have been working on both of these bills for a long time, even actually back into 2020 before they were in the form they are now, when it was clear that there was, was going to be some reinvestment in the economy as a result of the pandemic. Um, we started talking about buildings and building efficiency as an important area for jobs and for helping um, meet some of our climate goals, as well as all the other co-benefits of you know, saving consumers money and business uh, competitiveness and so on. So the infrastructure bill, as you say, is now law, so that's great. Um, some of the things in there um, include our program from the Department of Energy to fund uh, school districts uh, with the focus on you know, lower wealth, high needs districts for energy efficiency and renewable energy projects. So that's one example. Um, there's also some funds for weatherization and for the state energy programs. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's uh, money for things like airports and that might is more traditional infrastructure, but they include a priority for projects that increase energy efficiency and sustainability. So uh, some of that language is really positive and will help get this money, um, not just out there for traditional infrastructure replacement or expansion, but to try to make it more climate friendly as an outcome. And then reconciliation bill, which has now passed the House and is mm -hmm. in the Senate for some some size haircut. We don't know yet okay. uh, what the trim will look like. This is um, the separate uh, Build Back Better legislation, right, that we're talking yes. about? Okay. Exactly. Sorry, that's our inside <laughs> the Beltway speak is reconciliation, okay. which is the budget process. And that's most definitely not bipartisan. It's a democratic mm -hmm. endeavor using a specific budget process. Um, and that includes much more. So there's money for, for federal buildings to um, to create, to, sorry, to do renovations to make them into high performing green buildings. There's money for federal buildings to build resilience and to use procurement to invest in cleaner materials and products, um, which could include electrification as well. Um, there's funds for uh, there's tax incentives for clean energy, um, including some updates to some that um, your folks uh, listening probably know about the 17090 um, commercial mm -hmm. buildings energy efficient property deduction, um, as well as the residential ones, uh, 45L for new residential construction and 25C for um, individual components for, for retrofits of housing. So um, there's a lot there that's like, um, uh, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a ton in here. Mm -hmm. And I think um, we'll see Hopefully uh, that that money will be used in a way that can optimize climate outcomes and help mm -hmm. to build that momentum, um, as I was saying, that so that we can get more and more of the changes in the building sector and with efficiency, getting you know deeper efficiency, much more commonplace. So That's, yeah, sorry, I, there's so much I don't even know. Oh, yeah, like, I know it, it, is, it, is, so. it, it, it can be over. It is overwhelming. 
Um, I was also thinking that, that for, I'm not even sure if, if uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure when they launched this task force, but um, um, last, last month we spoke with, with Nick Schwedler, the uh, president of, uh, of ASHRAE. And uh, the ASHRAE had had their epidemic task force um, going all through the, the pandemic and it's still going. I guess that was a, uh, something that they started there and had you know, all kinds of experts and they were meeting, uh, I think twice a month and whatnot. And, he, and Mick was telling us that the, uh, the momentum from that carried them over to, to form a, a decarbonization task force. And I believe that just started uh, last month. And I'm not sure if that would be something that I would, I would assume that USGBC would be uh, at least have a liaison to that at some point. But uh, I much, wasn't sure if you're aware of, of that decarbonization task force because it seems that, uh, that ASHRAE is trying to uh, be more active in that area as well. And, um, I, and I know they had a representative or two in, uh, in Glasgow uh, as well. So I guess the engineering community is trying yeah. to, uh, to step up as well. So that's... Yeah, and I, I did um, see the ASHRAE treasurer over there, um, oh, yes. who's the you know, upcoming president. I know we have someone at USGBC, um, Catherine Hammock, who's on one of the board. I think she's on the 189 board. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we do try to collaborate closely with ASHRAE, especially on our congressional affairs, but also on some of the standards development. And we're partners on 189, of course, so. Mm -hmm. um, and ICC was there as well, um, oh, yes. talking about building codes, because that's an important element. Mm -hmm. You know, in many of the countries where there's projected to be a lot of growth in buildings, they don't have a national energy code. They don't have the same system as us, and they also don't really have a code. So um, both for, for safety, for all different reasons, um, you know, that's something that, uh, folks are really obviously encouraging those countries to try to take steps to get a building code in place. Yes, actually, I think we just posted uh, ICC's uh, latest statement on, on that from, um, from Glasgow just a couple of days ago. But I appreciate um, you're trying to cover as much here. And I know, but in, in, in respect for your time, though, I know uh, um, we can We'll just ask you one more question here. And I guess just that we, we spoke a, a few months ago with Rick Fedrizzi, co-founder of USGBC. And I'll ask you the same question that I'd asked him at the time. Um, that today, taking real action on the climate, ironically, seems to face these two almost diametrically opposed factions of, of people who somehow still deny that climate change is real. Um, but then those who acknowledge it, but also think that it's maybe too late to make a difference that the, the I guess the Eeyores of the movement, uh, so to speak. Um, so I, going back to how you describe yourself as a mom, daughter, friend and lifelong earth lover, earth lover um, what do you say to friends and colleagues and legislators and business leaders who express either of those views to you? Because I'm sure you come across them. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I feel like there are people out there, but it seems when you talk to someone one-on-one -on -one or even in a small group, there's a lot less of that. And I feel like it really comes down to, in the US especially, um, people are concerned and afraid about, afraid of change. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know that it's so much ideologically based as much as a fear of the unknown. So if we transition to clean energy, does that mean you know, I can't go on vacation because we're not supposed to fly or does it mean um, I have to have a smaller house or, you know, people think of it in a much more 
personal way. Um, you know, so I think, uh, and, and jobs, of course, is the other thing. So, you know, when you, uh, so one of the people, actually, this is maybe answer your question more directly. Um, we attended a dinner with, uh, sponsored by the um, Conservative Climate Caucus. So there were some conservative uh, lawmakers there. Um, and I talked to Congressman Curtis from Utah. He represents Carbon County as at his table for dinner. And, um, you know, a, a genuine person. And, you know, he talked about his conversations with coal miners in his district and essentially saying, you know, you know eventually these jobs are going to be gone and mining isn't isn't really good for you. Um, and they understand that or they're starting to understand that they just want to have, in his words, um, they want to have their own determination of what's next and not have, you know, Washington decide what they're going to be retrained as. So, I mean, I think it's more about options and, you know, the U.S. is like very big on freedom and personal choice. Mm -hmm. So how do we respect that tradition at the same time as, you know, recognizing we're in this, we have one earth, so we have one planet and we really have to work together. Um, so I don't know, that's a little meandering question, but no, I it's... think your answer, but yeah. <laughs> Well, that's okay. And I, well, then I guess I'll ask you the, a bonus last question of just the, okay. overall, the, just the um, the sense of optimism. You said you described yourself before as an optimistic person, and uh, and where are you now? I guess is after before at Glasgow and after Glasgow. I guess and, and with all the other factors that we've actually as we're coming out of the pandemic, so much so much going on. I guess, but how, how do you how do you rate your your level of optimism now? I think it's higher. I think I think that. Like I said, I, I feel like this youth pressure was really strong mm -hmm. and effective, and that they um, was very peaceful and everything. And it was all different ways. There were, you know, posters from children in the halls of the COP, and like I said, it was just something that the negotiators were aware of. Um, so I just think that the, you know, the younger generation, they're not going to let us off the hook and they'll keep that pressure mm -hmm. up and that will keep ambition up. So I think it's incumbent on like our industry, on our government to hold ourselves accountable and do what we said we were going to do. And mm -hmm. that once, you know, we get this and that's where I think the build back better and the infrastructure funding can be really helpful and getting that momentum and then the things will take off. I guess that's where I'm hoping and then it will go faster than anyone predicted. So if you look at some in the engineers will love this and some of them will know it, like <laughs> technology adoption, it'll be like that curve, right? So it's mm -hmm. like slow, slow, slow. And then all of a sudden it takes off. So we need to get to that taken off point to really decarbonize throughout. Mm -hmm. It's like remember when when nobody had a cell phone and now, now exactly yeah now you can't put it down right. but well liz thank you very much for your time i, I think that's uh, uh that's a good place probably to stop here and thanks so much again for your insights and um and uh, i want to thank everybody here also for listening in today um 
So if, if, if folks, if you, if you like what you heard here, please click and share this podcast. Uh, please like and share this podcast with friends and colleagues. And, and to hear previous podcasts, please visit our growing media library at the members only section of our website, hpac.com. Um, again, uh, Liz, thank you so much for your time here. And I uh, wish everybody uh, uh, to have a, a safe and resilient, uh, happy holidays. So thank you very much, Liz.